Thank you for downloading this Hay Festivals podcast. For more information about the Hay Festivals globally and to access our archive, please visit hayfestival.org. Thank you. Thank you very much for coming. Welcome to the Capella Marquis. Um, I'm delighted that our speaker's popularity has boosted him from the smaller venue. All I can say is, where the hell were you in 2001? <laughs> William Haig um, is patently the most popular Conservative politician for Wales. Um, as Secretary of State, he conducted a series of reforms which made the country better. As leader of the opposition at the dispatch box, he dominated um, Prime Minister's question time with a devastating wit and intellectual force to no electoral success whatsoever. He is, however, one of the most erudite and brilliant writers to have shared political um, prospect for some time. His biography of William Pitt the Younger uh, won the History Book Award at the National Book Awards and is shortlisted, uh, was shortlisted for the Channel 4 Political Book of the Year. He is going to talk about it for 40 minutes and has then very kindly agreed to take questions. There are roving mics which tend to work best if you hold them three or four inches in front of you horizontally. Um, and has then very kindly agreed to sign copies of his book, which is just out now in paperback, in the book tent afterwards. Uh, I wish you a very happy hour with him and asking you to join me in giving him a very warm welcome. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much indeed. It's a great pleasure to be here at the Hay Festival and a great pleasure, as always, to be giving a speech once again in Wales. It's about 10 years now since John Major appointed me Secretary of State for Wales, which I was pretty surprised about at the time because I'd hardly been to Wales before at that uh, particular point. And he said, I want you to take Wales to your heart. And then uh, about a year later, when I announced I was going to marry Fionn, my private secretary, he said, I think you're taking this a little bit too literally. <laughs> But I did take Wales to my heart, and uh, so I'm delighted to be here tonight. And one of the things I really enjoy about history is that it puts present events into perspective. I suppose this might be one of the advantages of being a present-day politician writing about history. People, for instance, have uh, said in recent weeks, what about the royal wedding, what about all the mess in the royal family, and so on. And I just tell them about the behavior of the royal family and the, at the time of William Pitt, as detailed in my book, where Prince George, Prince of Wales, was so horrified that he had to marry Caroline of Brunswick uh, that he sent his mistress to greet her at the docks. He, he asked for brandy as soon as he saw her. He was, he was drunk at the wedding. He had, he had a locked out of Westminster Abbey during the actual coronation ceremony in which she was meant to be crowned queen. And when in 1821 Napoleon died, and by then he was George IV, and the messengers came to him to say, Your Majesty, your greatest enemy is dead, he apparently replied, By God, is she? <laughs> and, and so today's events... Hmm. Is that today's events have absolutely nothing on what it was like in the past. And the same is true of political caricature. I've put in my book some of the, the rude 
caricatures of the time, far ruder, far more explicit about politicians and the royal family than anything we would consider uh, normal or tolerable uh, today. Today, we have to put up with uh, various uh, insults as politicians. I remember being on a private eye cover eight years ago. It was a picture of me and Cecil Parkinson, and there was a bubble coming out of my mouth on this cover that said, I want to bring unity to the party. And there was a bubble coming out of Cecil's mouth that said, is she a goer? Uh, and that, um, that tells you something about the state of my party at the time, actually. And uh, there, there was another one of me and John Major digging the foundations of a factory uh, not far from here in Newport, uh, Wales. And uh, there we were with our shovels in the ground, and there was a bubble coming out of his mouth that said, this sod won't move. <laughs> and, of course, there was, there was one coming out of my mouth that said, you will after the election. Uh, and, and this carries on. I'm glad to say they do this to all political parties. There was a very prophetic one last summer of David Blunkett walking along with his dog and a policewoman, and the dog was saying to the policewoman, watch out, he's on heat. And, and so it's, it's only when you look at the history that you see these things were even worse in the past. And the same is true of the letters that you receive as a politician. I, I collect some of the letters I received. Uh, one written to me by a Yorkshire constituent a few years ago said, I hope you can take some constructive criticism of your speech. It was rubbish. <laughs> then I had one... Uh, I'm not making this up. I had, one, uh, I had one a few months ago. This is what my most treasured letter today that said, Dear Mr. Haig, the Taliban have taken over Anne Widdicombe's body and no one has noticed. <laughs> that end of letter, that was it. Yours sincerely, end of letter. No, I don't know what you do. Do you copy it to Anne Widdicombe? I don't know what you do. And, and therefore, it's a great uh, encouragement to find, as I, as I trawl through the bits of correspondence left behind by Pitt's last private secretary, to find a bit of the hate mail of the early 19th century that was written in an entirely different language, but it was uh, similarly amusing. It, was, it, it started off, I say, Billy, you infernal blaggardly son of a thief, you bottle-nosed rascal of a prime minister, Egad, my old buck. Now, no one ever puts Egad in hate mail uh, anymore. <laughs> You'll be getting alongside of the devil soon, but he'll shave your timbers for you and give you a broadside and send you, but he won't send you to Windsor to drink three bottles of wine after dinner while many a poor thing can't get bread and all through you, you meagre-looking hound. So... <laughs> Any, any idea that this was some genteel age in which a young man could succeed more easily in politics because they were all nicer to each other then, cast that idea aside. Politics was as uh, vituperative, as personal, perhaps more so uh, than it ever is uh, today. And I got interested in uh, William Pitt, I suppose, nearly 30 years uh, ago now. Uh, I hadn't studied Pitt at school. Uh, most people haven't studied William Pitt at school. They probably have an acquaintance with the name William Pitt. Well, they know maybe he was prime minister. They know he was young. They maybe know he drank a lot of port. They've perhaps come across him in Blackadder on one occasion, uh, where Rowan Atkinson was shown saying, Who are you then, Pitt the Elder, Pitt the Younger, Pitt the Fetus, or Pitt the Twinkle in the Milkman's Eye? <laughs> 
And that really is all they know about William Pitt. Um, and when I, I once gave a notorious speech when I was uh, 16 years uh, old, uh, which was a great mistake for all sorts of reasons, but well, I remember Margaret Thatcher taking me on one side after it, on one side in front of the entire national media. Uh, and first, first of all, she said, you must go and telephone your mother. And I can't tell you how irritating it is as a teenager to be stood in front of the press and told to go and telephone your mother. Um, and then she said, we may be standing here with another young Mr. Pitt. And I thought, what is she talking about? <laughs> because I hadn't studied William Pitt at school. Anyway, I went off to read about William Pitt. And by the time I became leader of the opposition, 20 years after that, I had a portrait of William Pitt, who then became a bit of a hero, on the office wall and above the shadow cabinet room, the table, so that we could all look up to this man who did so brilliant in his 20s and 30s to inspire us all in our 30s and 40s to try to do just as well in a later century. And then after the 2001 election, this um, proving an insufficient inspiration to have brought about victory in the uh, general election, I... Um, started work on a book about William Pitt. And I went to Westminster Abbey, first of all, to see where he was buried, because I think when you write about someone, you have to try and touch whatever is left of their life, and that includes going to see their grave. Uh, and after all, it's only a few hundred yards from my office in the north transept of Westminster Abbey, not by the great west door where there is the tomb of the unknown soldier and everybody walks around it and observes that uh, tomb. This is in the north transept and all the tourists that go into Westminster Abbey every day walk straight over the top of it. Uh, and it's a rare thing. It is the grave of two prime ministers in the same grave, Pitt the elder and Pitt the younger. And yet they, they have almost worn the inscription smooth. You cannot now read most of the inscription. And I said to the Westminster Abbey authorities when they showed me this, well, perhaps I can use some of the proceeds of my book to restore the lettering on the grave. Let's have the gold lettering back on the grave as it would have been. And so they looked a bit surprised about this. First of all, they had to get over their astonishment that a Yorkshireman had suggested spending money unnecessarily. <laughs> uh, then they more or less recovered from this and said, very good idea, Mr. Haig. Then they came back the next day and said, <clears throat> we're so sorry, Mr. Haig. We don't know what was written on the grave because nobody wrote it down in 1806 and it's just been worn away in the 190-odd years uh, since then. And this came to symbolize to me the, the loss of the popular memory of William Pitt, this extraordinary figure. Uh, even though most of us have forgotten about him in the intervening two centuries, we're talking about a man here who was Chancellor of the Exchequer at the age of 23, who was Prime Minister at the age of 24, having twice refused to take office as Prime Minister already by that stage, who was laughed at in the House of Commons when he was appointed at the mere idea that this schoolboy, as he was depicted, could become Prime Minister, and yet who went on to be Prime Minister for 19 of the subsequent 22 years, who, when he died in office at the age of 46, was still younger than all but two of his 37 successors, even when they entered office as Prime Minister, who restored the fortunes and finances of Britain after the disasters of the American War of Independence, 
who lived in 10 Downing Street for longer than any other politician before or since, who became the longest serving war leader of this country, who dealt with the endless indiscretions of the Prince of Wales and the occasional insanity of King George III, who debated in an age of eloquence in the House of Commons with Fox and Burke and Sheridan and Wilberforce and was the equal or master of them all, who saw off attempted invasions of Britain, dealt with a mutiny in the Royal Navy, ended a run on the Bank of England, suppressed a rebellion in Ireland, who plotted naval strategy with Nelson, and who stood alone against Napoleon. And so this is a towering figure in the history of our country. And it is hard to understand the history of Britain without knowing something of the life and times of William Pitt. And yet there was definitely a need for a new book. When I went to a dinner of one of the Pitt clubs, hundreds of Pitt clubs were formed in his memory when he died, and two of them still meet regularly. And I went to a dinner of the London Pitt Club a couple of years ago as I began work on the book. And as we sat down to dinner, one of the elderly gentlemen said, you may know the answer to this, young man. Which Pitt is it we're all on about at this club anyway? <laughs> and, and if... If that, was what, if that was their level of understanding at the Pitt Club, there seemed to be a need for a new book. And William Pitt has always been difficult to get to know in death, just as he was difficult to get to know in life, because he is a strange, paradoxical figure. Many people felt they couldn't understand him even when he was alive. He is regarded as the founder of the Tory party, because he left behind him a group of people who coalesced into what became the Tory party. But he would never have termed himself a Tory, and when he did give himself a label, he said he was an independent Whig. And really, he thought he was just an individual of such merit that he ought to be governing the country irrespective of any party consideration. Uh, he was brilliant in financial matters. He introduced no fewer than 22 budgets onto the floor of the House of Commons because the whole time he was Prime Minister, he was Chancellor of the Exchequer as well. This at least avoided damaging splits between the Prime Minister and the Chancellor, which may have its, um, may have its relevance today, but brilliant in financial matters, but so incompetent and neglectful of his own personal finances that when he died, he had debts which in today's money would be well over two million uh, pounds and which had to be written off by Parliament. Uh, he was described by his friends, particularly Wilberforce, as the wittiest man they ever knew, incredibly lively in conversation and company, but only among a very small circle of friends and everyone else knew him as cold and aloof and austere. There are accounts of him walking into the House of Commons with his head held high, his nose in the air, not deigning to look left or right at the members uh, who gave him his power. And he himself said to Wilberforce that he was the shyest man alive. So paradoxical figure in that sense too. And he was an eternal optimist, often naively optimistic about people and events, particularly in wartime, and yet in the end, so worn down by the pressures of political office that he worked and worried and drank himself to death. And so he is a strange figure made all the more harder to get to know by the fact that he did not leave behind him the wonderful records of his life that some political leaders might leave behind. 
There is no detailed diary in the manner of a Gladstone who often left behind an account of how he spent each quarter hour of the day. Uh, there are none of the writings and reflections or recordings that illuminate a life of Churchill. He was hopeless at even answering letters. Uh, when he died in 1806, there were letters unopened on his desk from the 1780s, 20 years uh, before, uh, because he always was going to get round to the unimportant things eventually, and he never did get round uh, to them at any point in his life. Uh, and so the uh, written record of his life has always been a little patchy as a result. And so I have tried to put together the account of his life through the eyes of a politician and the eyes of a young politician, used to be a young politician anyway, and in the chronological sequence, uh, because that's how political life is actually lived. Often you find a, a history book, a, a biography of a politician, comes along in themes, and they say it's foreign policy from year A to year C, and it's domestic policy from year Y to year Z. But actually, in political activity, life does not come along in neat chapters. Once one thing goes wrong, everything goes wrong. Every crisis piles on top of every other crisis. Usually the reason you make a big mistake is that you were thinking about some other things at the time. And so I've tried to demonstrate in my book how that was even true in the 18th century. And taken individual days, like May the 26th, 1797, where Pitt is in office as Prime Minister and he is woken in 10 Downing Street by artillery fire, because the artillery are rioting at Woolwich Barracks. And he goes downstairs to hear news of the Navy mutinying and threatening to cut off London from the sea uh, in the Thames estuary. And then it is into the cabinet meeting where they are discussing Britain's last ally in the war against France, the Austrian Empire, pulling out of the war. And then it's down to the House of Commons in the afternoon and long into the night to debate an opposition motion on something entirely different, put down purely to embarrass him on that particular day. So even without the, the instant communications and the, the, the multitude of issues that a 21st century politician in office has to deal with, the pressures were intense on an 18th century leader, particularly in a time of war. Now, the central question that I've tried to answer in this book is how on earth did a 24-year-old become prime minister? In any day or age, it never happened before, it's never happened since, it is a pretty safe bet that it will never happen again. How did this unique event in British history come about? Uh, and there are several explanations for this. One is the elder pit, the influence of his father. His father was the Churchill of the 18th century, a difficult, controversial politician who nevertheless stepped forward in a time of war. This was the Seven Years' War, arguably the first global war in the middle of the 18th century to lead the nation aside from all party considerations and who presided in the very year of the younger Pitt's birth, 1759, presided over the great year of victories. This is the year in which Horace Walpole wrote, our church bells are worn threadbare with their ringing, as the news poured in of British victory at Quebec and, and all of Canada removed from French dominion, and the same in India. Uh, and victory on the continent and on the high seas. The, much of the British Empire was born in that year under the stewardship uh, of the elder Pitt. 
And so the younger Pitt grew up from his earliest infancy, knowing he was the son of a great man. And he was taught to speak in the House of Commons and to discuss politics by his father, who, when he was two years old, had retired from office as prime minister. Literally, it is the only example in British history of the head of one administration being tutored by another. Uh, And the elder Pitt would have him stand in front of him each night before dinner uh, and translate from Greek and Latin texts into English, not allowing him to proceed until he had found the perfect word. Uh, Literally, this was a case of go home and prepare for government, Uh, uh, the only time in British politics when it was literally uh, true. And so when he became a member of parliament at the age of 21, he arrived fully formed as an orator in the House of Commons, already trained by his father over many years, added to his great natural aptitude for speaking. And Edmund Burke was heard to exclaim when he made his maiden speech, this is not a chip off the old block, this is the block itself. (laughs) But it was the genius of his father and the inspiration of his father that helped to bring that out and to give him the impression as a very young man Uh, that he was destined to do nothing other with his life uh, than to govern the country. The second important factor in allowing someone so young to become prime minister was that an external event wiped out the careers of all the other leading politicians of the day. A wonderfully convenient thing for a young man on the make. (laughs) If only this had happened in our own time. (laughs) And, And this was the American War of Independence which discredited the politicians who had fought the war because they lost it, and it discredited many of the politicians who had opposed the war because they had opposed their country in a time of war and thus made themselves unacceptable to the king and others for being in office at a later stage. And it was through the political convulsions that followed in Britain from defeat at the the hands of the American colonists uh, that led Uh, to the need for an entirely new and untainted figure in politics, just at the moment that this new and untainted figure arrived on the scene. The third factor in his youthful success was that politics was much more a young man's game in those days than it is today. Uh, In the House of Commons that was dissolved a few uh, weeks ago, I haven't yet done the calculation for the new House of Commons, Of the 659 members, only four were aged under the age of 30 at the time they were elected at the previous general election. Four out of 659. In the House of Commons, which Pitt entered as a 21-year-old in 1780, there were 100 members under the age of 30 in a smaller House of Commons. It was a younger man's business, the game of politics, in an age when youthful success was more widely accepted than it is today. This is at the time where Mozart is touring Europe at the age of 15. It's around the time where Alexander Pope has published his first verses at the age of 12. And of course it is at a time when absolute monarchs are dispensing power in, on the continent of Europe Also at very early ages, Catherine the Great had seized the throne of Russia at the age of 33. Frederick the Great had become king of Prussia at 28. Louis XVI had ascended the throne of France at the age of 20. The idea that young people uh, could hold immense power uh, was not an alien idea to people in the late 18th century, while we would find it extraordinary today. 
And so this is a time where youthful success was more widely accepted and more generously indulged than it is in the late 20th or early 21st century. The fourth factor in permitting him to uh, succeed was patronage. Uh, because you didn't necessarily in those days have to go through the tiresome process of getting thousands of people to vote for you in order to become a member of parliament. Most of the constituencies were rotten boroughs, uh, where people sold their votes and en were entirely expected to be able to sell their votes just as they sold their cattle uh, or whatever else. And so you could be appointed to parliament, uh, thus allowing 21-year-olds to get in there uh, straight away, and Pitt was given the rotten borough of Appleby in Westmoreland, in the north of England. And he wrote very excitedly to his mother, Appleby is the place I am to represent. I am to be elected without having any difficulty and without even having the trouble of visiting my constituents. <laughs> and things have changed dramatically today. Uh, and indeed, he never did visit those particular uh, constituents although he was elected four years later in a more open and democratic election as the member for Cambridge University, the seat that he really wanted to represent and which he represented till the day he died. And the fifth factor, on top of the patronage, the acceptance of youthful success, the effects of the American War of Independence and the influence of his father, the fifth factor was that he was, of course, a brilliant individual. And he was the first politician, perhaps, to craft an image of himself among the wider, among the country at large, and then act consistently with it. Just as we might consider Harold Macmillan or Harold Wilson to be the first politicians who really used the power of television, so Pitt was the first politician to use the power of the press to create an impression of himself around the rest of the country because newspaper circulation was trebling in every decade. The turnpike roads were being built and the newspapers could be carried much further. Ten printing technology improving all the time and it was legal to report the proceedings of Parliament for the first time in the history of the country. Suddenly people could find out what the politicians were doing in their name and in an age of truly corrupt and thieving and venal politicians, Pitt set out to present himself as an honest politician who had the interests of the taxpayer at heart. I cannot tell you how different this was from the politicians that had preceded him. Uh, Henry Fox, Charles James Fox's father, in his time as paymaster general, in a short time as paymaster general, amassed £400,000, an immense sum uh, for those days, by taking the interest on the government's money paid into his own private account and taking commissions on any money payer given to other countries as loans. This was entirely in conformity with the practices of the middle of the 18th century. But people were getting thoroughly fed up with it when Pitt became Prime Minister, astonishingly, at the age of 24, and suddenly he had the power to appoint himself to a sinecure for the rest of his life, uh, because the holder of it died a few days after his appointment as Prime Minister, instead of appointing himself to it and awarding himself £3,000 for life without doing any work at all, he uh, disdained doing so, returned the money to the taxpayer instead, and the reputation of honest Billy was born in a country that was yearning for an honest uh, politician. 
And so he was able to win a general election, uh, turfing out his opponents in the House of Commons, winning a majority in his own right in the epic general election of 1784. And to give you some idea of what elections were like uh, at that time, they were an extraordinary mixture of skullduggery and bribery as well as uh, democracy. It was entirely legal to give vast quantities of alcohol to your voters in order to encourage them to vote. Uh, what is less well known is there was a technique known as burking, which was to give your opponents' voters so much to vote that you could lock them in the tavern and keep them there until the polls had closed. Uh, and there was a technique known as shopping, successfully carried out in Gloucester in 1761, which was to give your opponents' voters so much to drink that they died before they got to the polling station. <laughs> so these were no-holds-barred elections. Uh, again, um, uh, more uh, with stronger feelings, perhaps, than anything that we see today. And in the 1784 election, Pitt was given the, the freedom of the city of London by the strongly supportive Corporation of London. Uh, he was then taken back to his brother's house in Barclay Square, and the crowds that were acclaiming him, Honest Billy, got so enthusiastic they insisted on removing the horses and pulling him along themselves. And this was a great honor in the 18th century. If you arrived in a town and they were pleased to see you, they removed the horses and they pulled you to the inn. But when this happened in the middle of London in a general election with thousands of people, clearly things had got out of control. The crowd was then in control of where you were going. And so first they went to Carlton House, the residence of the Prince of Wales, where they hissed long and loud to Pitt's great embarrassment. Then they turned the corner from there, if you know the, the streets of London, into St. James's Street, where they tried to go down little St. James's Street, where they were going to break the windows of Charles James Fox, the opposition leader, unless he lit a candle in Pitt's honour in his window. They were at length dissuaded from doing this. Up they went, up St. James's Street they went, when the members of Brooks's Club, an opposition club, came out with poles and broken chairs, set about Pitt's carriage, beat it almost to destruction. He had to be dragged to the safety of White's on the other side of St. James's Street, a much more supportive club. And it tells you something about politics in those days, that the Prime Minister could be in the centre of this violent affray in the middle of St. James's Street in a general election campaign. It also tells you something, that the alibi with which Charles James Fox demonstrated he could not have been present in this affray was that he was in bed with his mistress at the time. And, <laughs> and everybody thought that was a perfectly good excuse. <laughs> So this, this again, is, this is, gives you a little impression of what politics was like. Well, he won that general election and was securely in, in power for the foreseeable future. What was he like as prime minister? Well, he was extraordinarily eloquent for the reasons, uh, for, as you can gather from what I've said earlier. He was described as having transcendent uh, eloquence by the observers and diarists uh, of the time, even on one occasion when he was vomiting through the doorway of the House of Commons during the speech of Fox to which he had to reply, he returned to the dispatch box and gave a brilliant response. He had, they said, amazing powers of mind which bodily infirmity never seemed to obscure. He was intellectually uh, brilliant, having studied classics and mathematics. He, he was uh, particularly fond of, of mathematics. He loved finding elegant solutions to long-standing, intractable 
problems. And so in one of his first budgets, he set about dealing with the, the issue of the smuggling of tea. Tea had become the craze of 18th century uh, Britain, and 40,000 people were fully engaged in the smuggling of it around the coasts of Britain because the import duties were so high. Pitt set about dealing with this, slashed the import duties in his uh, first budget, uh, flooded the market at the right time in the London tea market to prevent the smugglers bidding up the price to impossible levels, seized smugglers' ships off the coast at the same time. And within a couple of years, uh, tea was all being legally imported, smuggling had been driven out of business, and the, uh, the Treasury had more revenue all at the same time. It was a classic, elegant pit solution to something that nobody had worked out uh, how to deal with uh, before. It meant, for instance, years later when there was a run on the Bank of England, which at that time had to provide you with your actual gold or silver if you turned up at the bank demanding to see it, uh, and there was a run on the Bank of England that Pitt invented the paper currency of small denomination notes, persuaded the merchants of the City of London to accept it, and the paper currency of that we know today uh, was born uh, by, uh, by the actions of William Pitt. As they said in one rather mocking verse at the time, of Augustus and Rome, the poets still warble, how he found it of brick and left it of marble. So of Pitt and of England, men may say without vapor, how he found it of gold and left it of paper. Uh, and he left many other enduring uh, um, marks on our financial policies. He, he did, I'm sorry to say, invent income tax uh, as the solution to uh, raising tax revenues in a war. He worked out that the whole country had an income of 100 million pounds put together and that if he could tax 10% of it, he would have 10 million pounds. However, it tells you something about people's inventiveness with their tax returns even then, that when he put it all together, it turned out the country only had an income of 50 million pounds that year uh, and half of people's income had disappeared. So he was like that as Prime Minister. He had a great... Uh, he was very good at talent spotting. The five prime ministers who governed Britain for the 22 years after his death all served in his governments. He was the first prime minister systematically to use the power of the treasury to control all the other departments of government, and so was probably the first modern prime minister. And he was a brilliant parliamentary tactician. And this is seen to best effect in the famous Regency Crisis, one of the great constitutional crises of British history in 1788, where George III appeared to have gone quite mad. Uh, the, the medical bulletin from Windsor stated, His Majesty has passed the day in a perfectly maniacal state. Uh, and the governing of the country was paralyzed, the opposition, who were in cahoots with the Prince of Wales, who loathed his father, and the feeling was, was mutual, wanted a regency declared, uh, which would bring the Prince of Wales, the, the powers of the monarchy. Pitt could then be turfed out of office, and even if the king recovered, he would recover to find his enemies in power. And it was Pitt who spun out the debate and the arguments on this for weeks and then for months in the hope that the king would recover, always under immense parliamentary pressure, always finding a ruse to look at a new precedent from the madness of Henry IV 300 years before, always seizing on a new opposition argument to have another 10 days of debate, until after three months of this, the king recovered, with days to spare before a regency would have been declared, and the king recovered to find uh, Pitt uh, still in power. So brilliant in all of these respects. What were his weaknesses? 
Well, he could not bear to bother cultivating a party following, and so he often was defeated politically because he hadn't bothered to cultivate that following. And perhaps most of all among his weaknesses, his personality was frozen as a 24-year-old. And this is what happens to you if you enter political office at an early age. Uh, you, you, you remain the person you were on the day you entered that office until you give it up. You don't make new friends because you don't know who you can trust. And you don't develop new interests uh, because you don't have any time. It is an entirely consuming thing. Now, most of us get over this problem by cycling pretty quickly in and out of any senior political office and then return to some resemblance to a normal human being. But if you become prime minister at the age of 24 and stay prime minister for, the rest of, for almost the whole of the rest of your life, you pretty much remain a 24-year-old, and he did. Endearingly so in some ways, in terms of enjoyment of simple fun and of deep loyalty to his uh, closest friends. But rather maddeningly, in other ways, he did not uh, mature. Uh, he, his rapid development as a politician stunted his growth uh, as a man. And this left him rather naive about human nature and about... Um, uh, people's reactions to what he would do. It meant that he never developed close relations uh, with women, or it was one possible reason uh, why uh, he didn't. Uh, he never married. There was one reputed love affair with uh, Eleanor Eden, but as soon as it was rumored that a marriage might result, he broke it off, citing an insurmountable uh, obstacle, and I suspect he never wanted to get married at all under any circumstances, uh, but certainly becoming Prime Minister at the age of 24 prevented him making new and closer uh, friendships had he wanted to, and he continued to drink heavily, having been told as a teenager to drink a bottle of port a day in order to deal with his teenage uh, complaints and finding that he had recovered immediately after doing that so he could be excused for thinking this was doing him good. He drank more and more as the years went by. Now, one of the most interesting and enjoyable aspects of doing the research on this book was to sit with the wine merchants, Berry Brothers and Rudd, and work out what was really in three bottles of port in the 18th century. Uh, and we had all the old port bottles out, uh, which looked like the port bottles of today. But when you pour liquid in and out of them, you find you only get two-thirds as much liquid as today because the glass is hand-blown and there is a large punt at the base of the bottle. So you only get two-thirds as much liquid in there. Then you discover that it wasn't as heavily fortified with brandy as it is today. So drinking three bottles of port a day, which Pitt regularly did as Prime Minister, was more like drinking one and two-thirds bottles of strong wine in today's terms. Still a large amount, but perhaps no longer an unimaginable uh, amount, particularly in an age where people did drink a lot more uh, than, they, than would normally be considered acceptable today. There was no drink driving in those days. But he did have a reputation for it, and he did occasionally stagger into the House of Commons uh, after drinking heavily late at night. Uh, there was one little rhyme in the opposition newspaper, The Morning Chronicle, when he staggered in with Henry Dundas, his uh, lieutenant. I cannot see the speaker, Hal, can you? What cannot see the speaker, I see too. Uh, so a, a, huge amount of, a huge amount of fun uh, was, um, uh, was made of this. And his other weakness as Prime Minister was that his brilliant, elegant solutions uh, often were extremely difficult to carry out in practice. One of them was to end the Irish question, the Irish problem, once and for all, by uniting Ireland and Britain in a single parliament and a single economy, 
But this required getting the Irish Parliament to vote itself out of existence. And this could only be done, despite his reputation for honesty, by bribing them on a spectacular scale, uh, which is what was done. And it's only some of the Secret Service records uh, that have become available in recent years that have allowed us to see the scale of the bribery, that votes changed hands at 4,000 guineas apiece in the Irish House of Commons. 28 peerages were given to people who then voted against their parliament uh, existing. So he had to, um, um, he had to get them the dirt on his hands of practicing uh, politics, despite his own incorruptibility. So these were his weaknesses. But where did it all go wrong, this extraordinary and brilliant career? Well, it went wrong because, in common with so many others of the time, he underestimated the consequences of the French Revolution, the great political earthquake of the late 18th century. At first, he thought that it would mean it would be easier to live in peace with France, uh, but once the French Revolution overspilled the boundaries of France, Britain had to go to war, and Pitt was a reluctant uh, war leader. He thought about government so much in financial terms that he always thought the French would run out of money before Britain would run out of money. Uh, but, of course, the French were never going to run out of money. In a revolution, they could confiscate all the assets of aristocracy, monarchy, and church uh, and deflate their currency as much as they wished. They never did run out of money, and Pitt was always disappointed in trying to bring that war to an end. He was up against a country, France, the most populous country in Europe at that time, which was waging total war, the first country in the modern world to truly declare total war, as the decree of the French National Convention put it, from this moment, they said, until that in which our enemies shall have been driven from the territory of the Republic, all Frenchmen are permanently requisitioned for service in the armies. The young men shall fight, the married men shall forge weapons and transport supplies. The women will make tents and clothes and will serve in the hospitals. The children will make up old linen into lint. The old men will have themselves carried into the public squares to rouse the courage of fighting men to preach the unity of the republic and the hatred of kings. And this was a mobilization that produced one and a half million soldiers within one year. The greatest mobilization of men the world had ever seen. And this was what Pitt was up against in the long years of war in which Britain asserted ever greater control of the seas, but in which the French were ever more dominant on the continent. And it was those long years which redefined Pitt as a from a, being a progressive politician to a reactionary politician, uh, repressive at home, trying to prevent revolution within Britain while resisting invasion uh, from abroad. He left office in 1801, having served 17 years as prime minister already at the age of uh, 41, uh, exhausted in a brief interlude in the war. But his supporters held a great banquet at the Merchant Taylor's Hall, and made the point very clearly, so much of uh, politics in the 18th century was put into verse in one way or another, that they wanted him back if uh, war was resumed. And they put it this way in the final two verses of uh, what they sang that night, And shall not his memory to Britain be dear, whose example with envy all nations behold, a statesman unbiased by interest or fear, by power uncorrupted, untainted by gold. So that was the... The honest Billy was still there. And then they said, And oh, if again the rude whirlwind should rise, the dawning of peace should fresh darkness deform, 
the regrets of the good and the fears of the wise shall turn to the pilot that weathered the storm. And this became the enduring legend of Pitt, the pilot that weathered the storm. The man worn down personally and his health deteriorating by the, by the month by leading the country in a protracted war. And he returned to office in 1804 with his reserves of health and energy and political support near their end. And the story of late 1805 really sums up where he had got to, the exhausted and perilous state he had got to. He had sat with Nelson in September 1805, plotting how to defeat the French and Spanish fleets. Nelson had then gone to sea, having made his coffin before he went, knowing what was likely to happen. A great battle took place on 21st of October 1805. We will celebrate the bicentenary later this year. It took 16 days in those times for a battle off southwest Spain uh, for news of it to get to Britain. And on the evening of the 7th of November 1805, the news arrived on the south coast and the messengers thundered through the night to bring the news to the Prime Minister in 10 Downing Street, waking him at 3 a.m. on the 7th of November, and he tore open the dispatches that reported in the words of Admiral Collingwood, the greatest and most decisive victory that ever was gained over a powerful enemy. Twenty sail of the line captured. This was the Battle of Trafalgar, in which, of course, Nelson had been killed. And two nights later, Pitt was due to be at the Lord Mayor's banquet at the Guildhall, and the exultant crowds acclaimed him, and inside he was toasted as the saviour of England and the saviour of Europe. And he returned thanks for it in one of the simplest and most famous speeches of our political history. He said, England is not to be saved by any single man. England has saved herself by her exertions, and will, I trust, save Europe by her example. And it was the last time his voice was ever heard in public. His health was collapsing. He was taken to Bath to try to recover his health. And there he received the news of the Battle of Austerlitz, in which Napoleon had vanquished all of Britain's allies and destroyed the alliance Pitt had built up over two years in a single day. And his spirit was finally broken. He was taken to his house on Putney Heath, uh, where he died in January 1806, and his last words, depending on who you believe, were either how I love my country, how I leave my country, or bring me one of Mrs. Bellamy's veal pies. <laughs> now, given the state of his digestion at the time, and I have consulted today's College of Surgeons with all his symptoms over, that are recorded over the 11 years before he died, and it seems from their unanimous view that he was killed by stomach ulcers uh, that blocked his digestive system, something you would be cured of in a few days today with antibiotics and other drugs, uh, but there was no cure for or understanding of that at the time. It seems highly unlikely, uh, given that he could keep no food down, that he was asking for one of Bellamy's veal pies. It is wholly within character that he moaned as he died, how I leave my country, uh, because the truly unique thing about William Pitt, not just his statistical uniqueness in being Prime Minister initially at the age of 24, but the extremely rare thing about William Pitt is that he dedicated his life so exclusively to public office that he thought about it from his infancy, sitting with his father, 
to the very last hours of his life, where he was still saying as he became delirious, here, here, as if sitting in the House of Commons, still inquiring the direction of the wind in case a messenger from Berlin would arrive with news of a new ally alliance. The little boy who said he wanted to serve his country in the House of Commons like Papa uh, was still thinking about his country uh, as he uh, passed out of consciousness. So it was wholly in character that he would say, how I leave my country. And this is the fascination of William Pitt that he devoted himself to public office and to the good of the country as he saw it, to the exclusion of all else, of health or wealth or family or anything else at all, told that further exertion would infallibly kill him. He said he would prefer to die at his post rather than desert it. And that makes him rare even in the annals of our prime ministers for his dedication to the public service that he so closely aligned his life, as I put it at the end of the book, so closely aligned his life with the fate of his country that at no moment of his existence could he separate himself from it. And that is why I found it such an exciting story to write and why I hope many of you will find it an exciting story to read. Thank you very much indeed. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Now, I think we've just got uh, 10, or 10 or 12 minutes or so for any questions. So who would like to ask the first um, question? Let's see. It's hard to see from here. That's better. Now I can see. Yes, there's someone down here. And then is there another hand we can send the microphone to after that? And then over there. So there's a gentleman here and then a lady there. Yes. Oh, it's gone over. OK, we'll start over there then. No, it's coming. It will come to you next. So. There, there, and then there. Right. Hi. Um, I was just wondering where you stood on the idea of Pitt's homosexuality, because there's been a few people in the whole Tom Steele rumours. Yes, there were lots of ribaldry about, uh, about this. Uh, Steele, his friend, who he made Secretary of the Treasury. Uh, there were various... Uh, I, I read you a few uh, verses earlier. There were verses about Steele making the tea, and tea making the tea was thought to be a rather effeminate thing to do. Uh, in those days, and, and many other verses that poked fun at these, um, uh, what people thought about Pitt. And, and that may well have been true, of course. There is no evidence for it uh, either way. Um, I think the um, truth of it is that in practice, Pitt was asexual. Um, there is no evidence of intimate relations with anybody at all. Um, and since he was prime minister uh, for almost his whole adult life, staying in Downing Street... Uh, with people all around him, and according to his uh, first biographer who knew him, it was his old tutor, never locked his bedroom door at night or anything, and they often walked in on him uh, with important news and dispatches, um, it seems highly unlikely that he had any uh, secret affair. Um, so uh, whatever he uh, felt in these matters, he kept it to himself, uh, and there doesn't seem to have been any uh, outward sign of it. But there were lots of rumors in the 18th century uh, 
Uh, the 18th century rumor mongers loved uh, exploiting them and, and talking about them. And they are, they are documented uh, in my book. Uh, yes, so then I said there was a lady over there, and then there's, there's a gentleman bursting to ask a question down near the front here next. Yes. Do you know why he didn't receive a more grand and fitting tomb at all? <laughs> why didn't he receive a more grand and fitting um, tomb? I don't know, it's a good question. The, the, the Corporation of London, who always supported him strongly, wanted him buried in St. Paul's. Um, and they did erect a great uh, monument to him in the Guildhall. Uh, and you can see, if you go to the Guildhall now, you will see one, a spectacular monument to, to both of the, uh, the pits, who are always close to the city of London. Um, I think it is to do with being a war leader, but not being there when the war actually was won. Uh, that, that's never good for a politician's uh, reputation in history. You know, we think of the great war leaders as those, those who actually accomplished the victories, uh, the Lloyd George, the Churchill, the Elder Pitt, uh, indeed. Um, but it was, um, this was a quarter-century-long war, the French Revolutionary Wars and the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, Pitt died at a very difficult moment in those wars, albeit after the victory at Trafalgar. And so it would not have been the national mood at that time uh, to erect an enormous um, monument or, or tomb uh, and so they're there in this very simple grave in Westminster Abbey, overlooked by the huge monument to his father, which does convey the reverence towards uh, him. The inscription on his um, uh, tomb is, if I, if I remember a little extract of it, is to this great uh, statesman, under whose administration divine providence exalted Great Britain to a height of power and glory unknown to any former age. That was how the elder Pitt was revered. They wouldn't have felt like that at the time that Pitt died, the younger Pitt uh, died. So perhaps that is the explanation. Uh, yes, there was then a uh, gentleman down here. Yes, this isn't a question about uh, Mr. Pitt at all, it's about yourself. Oh. Are there any circumstances under which you'd accept a nomination for the Conservative Party leadership? <laughs> or, or, or do you see that as something that has gone forever? Um, <laughs> you think I've written a book about someone who went back into the front line of politics and died as a result. <laughs> And, and that I would then do the same uh, myself. Uh, no, I'm not a candidate for the uh, leadership of the party. Uh, I don't want to be the leader of the party again. I certainly won't be uh, standing for it this time. Uh, and I don't rule out, however, uh, returning in some form to the front line of politics in some other capacity. Uh, I don't rule that out. Um, I'm not committing myself to it either, so don't get overexcited about it. Uh, but... Um, we will see. Uh, I, d I don't rule that out. I'm still a uh, member of Parliament, and I enjoy politics a lot. But, but, you know, I have discovered that there are a lot of other attractions in life. Uh, it has been... I, I was a bit of a pit in many ways earlier in life, and I have hugely enjoyed departing from the pit trajectory in, uh, uh, in life. And um, people say, you know, you peak too soon or something. Well, it's, it's great fun to do that, actually, and then get on with a lot of other things. So um, I'll take your question as encouragement, but I can't satisfy you on it uh, uh, in the foreseeable future. Um, now, we need another question. Uh, there's a lady there, and then after that, over there. Mm. 
You said that it was politics to the exclusion of everything else, but was he devout? About religion? Yes. No. Um, no, despite being educated at Cambridge, which, um, and then at that time, theology would really be the main uh, subject there, uh, and really, Cambridge University was in effect a seminary for the Anglican clergy, he was never remotely interested in religion. His, his great friend Wilberforce, of course, had his famous conversion in 1786 to evangelical Christianity and had many difficult conversations with Pitt about this and eventually persuaded Pitt to go and hear one of the uh, great evangelical preachers of the time and thought this would really get Pitt going on religion. Uh, I don't know whether whoever it was, Whitefield or, or, or one of those people preaching at the time. Uh, and uh, Wilberforce was so excited about this, and then he said to Pitt as they came out of the, uh, out of the sermon, uh, well, what did you make of all that? And Pitt said, do you know, Wilberforce, I have not the slightest idea what that man has been talking about. <laughs> um, and when asked to pray on his deathbed, uh, the morning before he died, his great friend, George Prettyman, who by this time was Bishop of uh, Lincoln, uh, prayed with him. Uh, he, um, uh, Pitt said that he had neglected prayer for far too long to have any hope that it would be efficacious now. Uh, so that was his approach to uh, religion. He was, an entirely, he was entirely concerned with the practical politics of the, of the day. And of course, Wilberforce was showing at the same time that you could have very strong religious belief and use that to inform your approach to the practical politics of the day with enormous effect in the case of Wilberforce. Uh, but that, that was not the way Pitt's mind worked. He was not remotely interested in or inspired by religion. Uh, yes, we were going over here, and then we, we, we'll fit in uh, perhaps one more after that, which is over here. You said that one of his uh, failings was that he failed to recognize the importance uh, and the after effects of the French Revolution. Um, well, they've had a little bit of another revolution over there just earlier this week. <laughs> Are we in danger of underestimating the effects of that? I hope not. Um, no, it's, uh, well, yes, we're getting drawn onto current day politics again. Um, again, France is a, um, you have to take note of um, events in France in any age. Um, I think the French Revolution was a bigger event even than the enormous event this week um, because it was as if, an, an analogy with the, uh, the French Revolution, it's as if the United States today, the most powerful country in the world, uh, overturned its entire framework of law and government. You know, it's as if America today said, we are communist. Uh, that, that is the parallel to France uh, with the, the, the country of the Sun King, of the absolute monarchy, uh, deciding that it was actually going to preach egalitarian revolution to the rest of the world. And at that time, the population of France was two and a half times the population of England. They were not countries of equal size as we think of them today. Um, so I think it was even more important, and let's hope what happened on Sunday does not set off 23 years of warfare. Uh, so I think the French Revolution was more important. Interestingly, however, what actually sparked the war in the end was when the French would not heed English, war British warnings to be careful about Dutch territory. It was the importance of Holland that tipped the balance in Europe. <laughs> Who knows what will happen tonight? <laughs> um, Right, I think we've, we've just got time for one more question, which is going to be over here, right at the, by the aisle there, at the other end. 
You say William Pitt didn't describe himself as a Tory. Um, uh, what do you think you can learn from William Pitt in terms of what Toryism actually is about? Because you're saying he didn't describe himself as one, but basically that's what he was. If William Pitt was a Tory, what lessons can the future, to the Tory party now, learn from him when they're talking about what Toryism is for? Hmm. Well, we must always be careful, I think, about um, extrapolating that the politics of one century to two centuries uh, later. Um, it's always very tempting to say, you know, what would Pitt's attitude be to something today? But, of course, he would not be able to imagine the world today. And it's always quite difficult to do those sorts of things. Um, the reason we, he's regarded as a Tory is because, is because of his belief in evolutionary change rather than revolutionary change. Uh, his strong belief in the continuity of the institutions of the country. For instance, he um, supported the, the rights of the um, privileges of the Church of England, not because of his religious belief, as we uh, discussed a moment ago, but because he thought it was important for the country to have strong, stable institutions. Uh, and for the same reason, his whole approach to reforming Parliament, and for a long time he campaigned for fairer elections to Parliament, uh, was to improve the, the reputation and the standing of Parliament, not to create a, a universal democracy. So he was a believer in, um, in relatively cautious change, in people needing strong institutions to know, to have a sense of belonging to their country and their community, um, and in free trade, which he pioneered with several other uh, countries. Uh, so, and all of those things you can discern in modern Toryism. So you can see the direct relationship there. Uh, but I think we'd be hard put to say, where does William Pitt take us in terms of who should be the next leader of the Conservative Party? And, and, and That would be stretching it too far. But you can discern modern Toryism in the Toryism of Pitt. Anyway, that's been a great pleasure to speak to you, so thank you very much indeed. Mm -hmm.